The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Sticking to his script, more rate hikes potentially coming. That's the word from Fed Chair Jerome Powell speaking this morning overseas. Just how many more hikes may be on tap from the central bank in just a moment. Could the usual summer slowdown in markets be a thing of the past? The historic signal suggesting stocks' ongoing momentum could actually roll on into July. And speaking of momentum, shares of Micron this morning moving higher as the boom in artificial intelligence and that industry helps fuel its bottom line. Meanwhile, Microsoft CEO taking the stand, making the case for his company's nearly $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard amid the FTC's bid to block that deal. And Apple shares hovering right now at a fresh record high as the tech giant looks to cross a market cap milestone again. It's Thursday, June 29, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland today. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures. Coming off a relatively muted mixed session yesterday afternoon. Right now, we're seeing specks of green. The Dow is implied higher by just about 56 points. The S&P higher by about seven and the Nasdaq up by about 34. So some modest gains for the opening bell in the cards, at least for right now. Checking on the bond market. Yields are ticking slightly higher. You can see the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield currently just a little below around 3.74%. The two-year note yield 4.755% and the 30-year long bond 3.83%. In energy, oil prices, we've been watching that WTI level for U.S. benchmark crude prices right around $70. We're hovering just below there, up about one half of 1%, $69.83. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, up about one-third of 1%, $74.30 there. We're also watching shares of Micron popping after third quarter results topped analyst expectations. Results are being fueled by demand for its chips from the, what else, rapidly growing AI sector and an easing supply glut for the computer and smartphone markets. Micron also saying sales for the current quarter will top Wall Street's expectations. We will have more and dig into those results coming up in the show. Meanwhile, Micron shares up 3.5% in the aftermarket trade. Let's now get a check on some of this top morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hi, Dom. Good morning to you. New comments out from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell this morning. Speaking at a conference in Madrid, Powell said that a strong majority of central bank policymakers expect two or more rate hikes by the end of the year. Powell adding that it will take time for full effects of monetary restraint to be realized, especially on inflation, which remains well above the Fed's 2 percent goal. Now, he made similar comments to our Sarah Eisen yesterday at a forum in Portugal. We believe there's more restriction coming. My colleagues and I, as you as you will know, 
uh, wrote down in our SEP two more additional rate hikes. The median uh, uh, was quite a strong majority actually wanted two or more rate hikes. <clears throat> and the reason for that was, if you look at the, the data over the last quarter, what you see is stronger than expected growth, uh, a tighter than expected labor market, and higher than expected inflation. So that tells us that although policy is restrictive, it's not, it may not be restrictive enough. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying she hopes to travel to China in a bid to reestablish contact with Beijing. Speaking with our colleagues at MSNBC last night, Yellen discussed meeting with a new group of leaders, reiterating calls for the world's two largest economies to work together on key issues. The secretary did not offer any details on when a trip to China may happen. And Microsoft CEO says he would like to ditch exclusive deals between video game companies and console makers. Testifying during a hearing on the FTC's bid to block Microsoft's takeover of Activision Blizzard, Satya Nadella says he has no love for the agreements. Microsoft has said it wants to make certain Activision games more widely available if it can close its takeover of the company, Dom. There's no doubt the video game landscape will change if a deal like this were to happen. Right. All right, Silvana, thank you very much. We'll see you later on. All right, back to the markets as investors gear up to wrap up what's been a solid June for stocks so far. While the usual mindset is that the summer months, especially July, are a quiet time for the market overall, that sentiment has actually been shifting over the last decade. Data from Carson Group showing July has actually been the best month for U.S. stock performance during this period. You can see there with the S&P 500 index rising on average nearly three and a half percent. That's compared to the average July performance since 1950, which saw the index gain about a one and a third percent. So for more, let's bring in Kalei Kadinia Pua'a, CEO, President, Vice Chair at Kadinia and Company. This is a situation where I was always growing up in this kind of Wall Street environment where it was sell in May and go away for a good reason. But it seems as though the market narrative has changed. How much of this is because of a normalization, if you will, of markets since the ultra-low interest rate regime, since the great financial crisis? Well, that that certainly is attributed to some of the market growth. I I think um, really what's what's fueling the market is this resilient consumer that we have, um, and, and, and jobs continue to to remain strong, you know, you have 10 million job openings for 6 million unemployed. Um, so as long as, as as the job market remains strong, the, the consumer should re- continue to remain pretty resilient. Um, there are little little hints of, of some cracks, if you will, in in, um, in what could be, you know, potential downside on, on consumer spending. Um, and we're watching it really closely. It's It's really closely related to kind of the credit cycle and the credit crunch that that we've been noticing. The the, the credit cycle and credit crunch is something that's playing out not just among the retail consumer spending side of things, but also in the way that the market perceives it. What exactly are those signs telling you right now about the future of consumer spending? It seems to be that's the reason why the economy is doing pretty okay. That's the reason why people still have jobs aplenty in this country right now. Well, like I said just just previously, that we're beginning to see some signs of stress 
on the consumer. Um, one one indicator came out recently, and it's it's on an index for non-performing loans that jumped to 14.8% in June um, from 4.5% in, in May. And so clearly, you know, the, the, the tightening that we're seeing from the Federal Reserve is having its effect, um, albeit a little bit slightly on the consumer, but it, we're beginning to see signs of, of some stress. Okay. If, if there is that stress, why is it that markets keep on pushing valuations higher and higher and higher? It's not necessarily just AI driven, but there's a whole slate of companies in the S&P 500 that are now at elevated levels, trading above their long term trend lines. What what types of things are telling you that that maybe is a sign of too much froth in the market right now and that we might be due for a pullback? Uh, it, it, valuations are astronomical um, in, in some sectors. You, you mentioned AI. Um, we, you know, we pulled some chips off the table in that. And we, as a long-term investor, we think AI, you know, definitely has a play um, in long-term markets. However, at the current valuations, you know, we, we anticipate some downside um, because it is frothy, as you said, and, and, and behaving somewhat bubble-like. Um, there are some pockets and, you know, globally, there's some regions that that offer better value. Um, Japan is one that that we're more constructive on. And, and so, you know, we're not calling for a recession at this point in time, but we are concerned towards the latter part of this year and into 2024 that we'll see some economic slowdown. Um, and, and we're hoping that we're able to to, you know, execute a soft landing, if you will. A, a lot of that is dependent on, on the Federal Reserve and monetary policy, as well as regulations. Um, some news came out that that kind of hurt the AI sector and that's um, in, in alignment with some new possible regulations that will prevent supply to China. And, and so, you know, it, it's a it's a very fluid situation and it's one that that warrants disciplined investing. Um, this is not one that you can just throw money at, at the wall and everything sticks. It, it, you definitely have to do your homework and, and maintain your disciplines. I think history has taught us that you can't just take the shotgun approach to many of these things and have it work. Kalei, thank you very much, Kalei. Continue, Pua. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Dominic. All right. There's a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. Meanwhile, Nike set to roll out earnings with questions around the health of the consumer, as we were just talking about. Those concerns are lingering. Why your next guest says the stock still has plenty of room to run. Plus, shares of big banks feeling some love this morning following results of the Fed's annual stress tests. That's a lot of green, as you can see there. We dig into how the financial firms all stack up with north of 1% gains for all the big banks. And Virgin Galactic set to launch its first commercial flight amid renewed questions about the safety of space tourism and the industry. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a, let's get a check now on the action in Asia and the early trading in Europe right now. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in the London newsroom with the latest. Good morning, Juliana. Dom, good morning. Well, here in Europe, things have gone off to a fairly sluggish start. It's a mixed picture in terms of the moves higher and lower across the regions. Focusing in on Germany, the market isn't doing a huge amount, but we did get some very interesting inflation data this morning from various German states, economically important German states. And we saw that inflation in June has accelerated in several German states from where we were in May. So this all points to a rise at the national level. We're going to get the national CPI shortly. The expectation is for 6.3% year-on-year inflation, up from 6.1% in May. So Putting this into context, the ECB yesterday at that conference in Sintra sounded fairly hawkish that more needs to be done to combat inflation. And today's data out of Germany would suggest that is indeed the case. Now, in terms of trade in Asia overnight, it was also a mixed picture. Uh, one of the weak spots, the Hong Kong, the Hang Seng, pulling back about one and a quarter percent. In contrast, a little bit of green in the Japanese market, the Nikkei 225 accelerating by about 0.1 percent. Dom? All right, Juliana Tattlebaum with the action in Europe and Asia. Thank you very much. Back here on the home front, we're watching shares of Nike ahead of the opening bell as the company prepares to report its fiscal fourth quarter earnings after the closing bell today. Nike has trumped both earnings and sales expectations for the past six consecutive quarters. Analysts, though, are growing increasingly pessimistic on the company over concerns that slowing consumer appetite in the U.S. could lead to a sales deceleration. Several of Nike's wholesale partners, including Foot Locker, cut fiscal year guidance during their most recent earnings call, warning that demand for sportswear is waning as Nike continues to struggle with elevated inventories in markets like North America. So let's talk more about this with Piral Dadania, executive director of European luxury and premium brands at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Peral, Nike is not a European brand, but it's ubiquitous around the world in terms of sportswear. It is a premium brand overall. Just how much momentum can Nike seek to pick up in this kind of macro environment? It's already down 3% year to date. Yeah, thank you, Don. Morning. Um, so I, th- I think we're at a kind of a precarious point in the, in, in the equity story here. We've obviously come off a very strong multi-year run supported by U.S. stimulus, COVID reopening, uh, and strong uh, spend rotation back into goods um, after a difficult period. Um, we are contending with a, uh, a market environment that's uh, synonymous with excess product, both in the U.S., but also in China, which we shouldn't ignore at this point. Um, I think it's important to just remember that at the beginning, well, from September of last year, Nike did flag that they had $900 million worth of excess product. That was about 10% of their total inventories on their balance sheet. They um, 
we expect that by the by the end of this fiscal year, when they report this evening after the close, they will have actually liquidated the majority of that product. So they will have delivered on their initial promise. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't still excess product out there in the market further down the down the supply chain, so to speak. Um, the, the challenge really is that the the overall consumer environment, particularly in the U.S., appears to be to be softening a little bit. Um, what keeps us a bit more positive is just that growth expectations for the U.S. for the next year are fairly muted. We're only expecting about 2% revenue growth for, for the U.S. market. And so as long as China comes back online in a in a fairly uh, healthy way, then actually we believe that expectations are broadly in the right place. Okay, okay Peral, the, the, you bring up the China trade. The, the reason why this is important, it, it does make up that greater China region a strong, strong part of the revenue picture for Nike. How much of a concern is the slowing momentum, not just here in North America, but the slowing momentum of the recovery from COVID zero in China going to play out? And is that part of the outlook that you'll be keying on this afternoon? Yeah, it is key to the equity story really here. Um, we do expect an acceleration uh, for the China period of uh, China region in this period that is supported by easy comps. If you remember in the calendar second quarter of last year, Shanghai, Beijing were shut down until sort of the, uh, the, the middle of May, uh, early June. So that, that we do have that comparative support in the China region. What's more important, though, for China, I think, on a on a sort of a multi-year view, is the ability for China for, for Nike and other sportswear brands uh, that are Western domiciled to be able to recover the lost margin that we've seen in the last few years. That's really key, I think, for these for, the, for Nike's equity story to work midterm. As it relates to what we're looking for tonight in the print, there's a couple of things I just want to highlight. The first is obviously the, the trajectory of growth. Uh, I touched on China. We need to see an acceleration there. But I think for the U.S., we need to see a, uh, some level of continuation of the of the strong three Q print that we saw that should be supported in some part by markdown and promotional activity. You know what you give up at the gross margin level, you're likely to get back in terms of revenue growth because you're selling at a slightly lower margin. Uh, apart from that, I think inventory is a key. We want to see continued progress there, which I've already touched on. Channel strategy is another key point here, Dom. There's a lot of debate out there around whether Nike is leaning a bit more strategically into wholesale on a on a go forward basis and we can touch on that if that's helpful uh, and then the midterm targets really you know as you know they have midterm targets out there very aggressive margin expectations actually which were which were which were put together before covid sure. in all fairness um, but the, the street just simply doesn't expect or estimate that nike can get back to those numbers and if you want to be bullish on this name and you can believe that the margins can get to the levels that that they suggested they could do a few years ago right then that's where the upside comes from all right at current valuations a lot of questions about what nike can do from here peral dadania uh, at RBC, thank you very much. I know you'll be watching it closely this afternoon. We'll see you soon. Ahead on here on Worldwide Exchange, uh, Gen Barbecue, Gen BBQ. Remember that one? The latest company to breathe some much-needed life into an otherwise stagnant IPO market? Well, our own Bob Fasani breaks down why the action may just be getting started in IPOs and maybe even Korean barbecue. All of that when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The biggest U.S. banks have all passed the Federal Reserve's annual stress test, a sign of confidence in a sector that's still dealing with the impact of that high-profile collapse of three mid-sized lenders earlier this year. The Fed says banks would be able to weather a severe recession with unemployment surging to a hypothetical 10 percent and a 40 percent decline in both commercial real estate and housing prices. Under that crazy scenario, they stay they could stay above minimum capital levels and keep lending despite more than five hundred and forty billion dollars in possible projected losses. The Fed is working to add more stress to the tests after taking heat for being too slow to address how rising rates contributed to the fall and failure of Silicon Valley Bank and others. So let's talk more about this with Stephen Bigger, the analyst at Argus Research, who covers many of these financial institutions. Uh, uh, Stephen, the annual stress test, I think it was a given. Uh, uh, Nobody really expected any of these banks to fail. But what's the big takeaway about the investability of these banks going forward knowing now what we know about these newest stress test results. Yeah, hi, Dominic. Uh, I, I would agree uh, that nobody expected any surprises, really, uh, from this stress test. These were uh, scenarios that were developed before uh, the Silicon Valley Bank failure and, and based on uh, year-end 22-type uh, numbers. So uh, I, I, while it's, a, it's a certainly a positive, it's a, a, a passing grade, um, you know, largely for the banks here. Really, the next steps we're looking at are, um, you know, how, how does that convert to the capital return, which uh, we'll, we'll typically uh, we'll, we'll see on Friday uh, from, from the banks in terms of buybacks and, um, and dividends. Um, but also, I think more importantly, uh, this is just a stepping stone on uh, some other requirements that are coming down the pipe, which would be the, uh, the Basel III endgame requirements uh, are likely to move uh, capital ratios up. Uh, even additionally, I mean, you know, these ratios only go one direction, which is up. Uh, and then, of course, uh, more strict, uh, severe adverse scenarios next year, testing for additional things like uh, interest rates moving higher uh, versus lower, which typically happens in a recession. So that's caused a lot of problems with the uh, securities portfolios of banks and the, and the valuations. So, uh, so still, a, you know, a tough road ahead uh, for, for many of these banks. All right. So, so there, there, was a, there was a time, an era, if you will, when, when investors viewed banks uh, as capital returners, right? Dividend payers, buyers of their own stock. It really helped enhance the, the return for, for shareholders there. I, I wonder, can investors still treat these banks the same way? They're healthy. The Fed says so. Uh, can we expect them to be the, the magnets for investor capital because of things like shareholder return? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what doesn't kill banks will make them stronger here. And uh, so certainly much safer from a, a capital cushion perspective. Uh, there may be a bit of a pause here uh, with respect to, to capital returns. And I don't think that's a, necessarily a bad idea. Uh, if you look at the yields right now, valuations are you know, quite compelling. Uh, four and five percent plus yields. Uh, we've got uh, price to earnings and price to book ratios that we haven't seen in, in many years. Regional banks, in particular, got very 
uh, hard hit during uh, the uh, the March uh, Silicon Valley failure. We're still down about 40% on regional banks here today. So a lot of value uh, there and, uh, and and great yields, uh, which we think uh, are only made more uh, steady uh, and confident in those dividends, uh, given these um, the passing grade here. Stephen, we've just got a few seconds left here. Favorite picks amongst the banks? So I think it's uh, you're safer in the largest um, global banks here, the J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, uh, Morgan Stanley, I would highlight. Um, and then some of the very strong uh, super regionals we'd highlight, like U.S. Bank Corp, Truist Financial, PNC Financial. Uh, these are companies that are, are very well diversified, uh, have you know great service territories, uh, well capitalized, and I think can, uh, if anything, benefit uh, over the longer term from the uh, consolidation that's likely to now take place in the in the, the bank arena. All right, another uh, analyst who thinks bigger is better, Stephen Bigger. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, as we head out to break, we're watching shares of Tesla right now. Disclosure showing two funds run by Kathy Wood's ARK Investment dumped more shares of the EV maker. The ARK funds have unloaded more than half a million shares of Tesla just this month. You can see there their shares are up 1.5% right now, just about 400,000 shares of volume. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. It is 5.30 a.m. in New York, and there's still a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange. So here's still what's on deck. Investors digesting fresh comments from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, repeating the central bank stance that more Fed hikes are ahead to continue the fight against inflation. Shares of Micron are climbing ahead of the opening bell as the white-hot AI industry gives a big boost to its quarterly results. We'll dig through those numbers. And Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway once again boosting its stake in what other stock? Occidental Petroleum, as it snatches up more shares of the oil company. It is Thursday, June 29th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up this half hour with a check on how the trading day is shaping up on the back of new comments by Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, reiterating that at least two more rate hikes are likely coming from the central bank. Right now, futures are indicating a slightly higher open. The Dow Jones up by 51 points, the S&P higher by seven, and the Nasdaq up by just around 30. We're also watching shares of Apple. After closing at a new record high yesterday and moving closer to surpassing the three trillion, yes, trillion with a T, dollar market cap, the stock is closing at 189, uh, just in probably 25 cents yesterday, up about 15 cents right now in the pre-market trade. So call it 2.977 billion, you know, trillion dollars at this point. Apple just seemingly marching higher and higher and higher. We're also watching shares of Gen Korean Barbecue surging nearly 28% in their debut yesterday, marking the largest, latest IPO to launch this month. Gen Restaurants right now down about 1% in the pre-market trade, $15.20. But again, a huge IPO out of the gate for this company. Gen's debut coming on the heels of Kava's, remember, Red Hot Start, signaling potential signs of life in an otherwise quiet IPO market so far this year. Our Bob Bassani has more on why momentum may not be slowing down in July and beyond. July doldrums are upon us, but maybe not for IPOs. Following on the successful IPO of Korean barbecue firm 
Gen Restaurant Group yesterday. We are waiting for three big IPOs to begin trading today. Savers Value Village, the largest for-profit thrift operator in the U.S., Fidelis Insurance, a global property reinsurance and property casualty company, and Kodiak Gas Services, a natural gas compression company, will all begin trading at the New York Stock Exchange today. All signs that the IPO market is slowly starting to reopen after essentially being closed for 18 months. So what's next? Trading volumes traditionally drop in July and August, and so does IPO activity. The traditional mantra is, if the IPO doesn't get done by July 4th, it often waits until after Labor Day. But that may not be the case this year. With several large IPOs already launched in June, the market may stay open in July. One potential candidate is Oddity Tech which sells branded beauty and wellness products to consumers worldwide and has already filed to go public. But we are still waiting for some of the larger IPO candidates to make announcements, like Reddit, Instacart, Panera Bread, Stripe, Impossible Foods, Fanatics, StubHub, Klarna, and even Arm. If any of those big ones set firm dates for an IPO, that's going to be a sure sign the IPO market is getting back to normal. Dom, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani, for the IPO check. Let's now get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Well, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway further increasing its stake in Occidental Petroleum. Berkshire revealing in a regulatory filing it has purchased more than 2 million Occidental shares this week. Now, that lifts its stake in the oil company above 25 percent. At Berkshire's annual shareholder meeting in May, Buffett said Berkshire was not planning to buy Occidental. Unionized dock workers in Canada could strike at the country's West Coast ports as early as Saturday after the International Longshore and Warehouse Union gave employers a 72-hour notice of its walkout authorization. Contract negotiations have been in progress since March as more than 7,000 longshore workers seek a new collective bargaining agreement. The Port of Vancouver handles about 15 percent of containers destined to or from the U.S. And a group of anonymous individuals has filed a lawsuit claiming ChatGPT creator OpenAI is stealing vast amounts of personal information to train its AI models in reckless hunt for profits. Bloomberg reporting the plaintiffs argue in their 157-page lawsuit that OpenAI had violated privacy laws by secretly scraping 300 billion words from the Internet by tapping books, articles, websites and posts and is putting society at risk of, quote, civilization collapsed on. That sounds very serious. Very. (laughs) All right. Silvana Hanau, thank you very much for those. Time now for one of your big money movers. That's Micron. Shares are moving higher after the company posted better than expected second quarter results and forecasted revenues in line with consensus estimates, despite warning earlier this month that a low double digit percentage of Micron's revenue could be impacted by China's ban of some of its products. Now, CEO Sanjay Marotra telling shareholders yesterday that he believes the memory industry has passed its trough in revenue and expects margins to improve as the supply and demand balance is gradually restored in that business. Joining me now for more on is uh, Matt Bryson, Senior Vice President in Equity Research and Hardware at Wedbush Securities. Uh, Micron, uh, I guess, in, in prior years has been seen very much as kind of this barometer for 
uh, smartphones and PCs, tablets, that sort of thing. But more and more, the story is becoming about AI. Just how much of a story could AI be for a company like Micron versus, say, an NVIDIA? I think at the end of the day, um, AI is going to benefit NVIDIA more than, um, say, Micron. You you certainly need memory for AI, but um, that's not going to be the the, the primary driver for Micron. Having said that, what we're seeing right now to some extent is is AI is cannibalizing some other use cases. So if anything, uh, companies are investing in AI servers versus standard servers, and that that's almost a, a headwind for Micron in the short term. As we start to get beyond uh, this this uptick in AI spend, though, um, at some point, standard server uh, builds have to normalize. When that happens, um, when you see the consumer come back, AI at that point it, it doesn't become so much of a, of a cannibalistic or have the cannibalistic impact um, on servers. Rather, you get this additive effect. And so, yes, you need more memory for AI. Um, When we get to 2024, you're going to need more memory for servers. You're going to start to see the consumer come back. You're going to see more memory in smartphones. I think it's that period that the people are looking forward to right now. All right. So, so Matt, let's, let's take it away from the AI somewhat and back to that consumer that you just mentioned Smartphones is, 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 is and, and some of the supply demand imbalance and memory chips, smartphones, tablets and that sort of thing has been has been at the heart of it. What does it tell you about Micron's results, about the, the dynamic there in, in terms of future, I guess, consumption of new products, smartphones coming out, tablets, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I, I, I think what you're looking at right now with, with Micron um, lowering their 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 bit shipments, I mean that tells you that, that right now those those end markets aren't so healthy. Um, I, I think in in uh, it, most importantly for Micron, their largest market for DRAM ends up being being servers, and I think standard servers being built for large cloud service providers. That that market in particular is suffering right now. Um, I, again, having said that, I I, I think that. Um, those cloud vendors are, are going to spend. Uh, so you'll see that recover in 2024. But I, I think what Micron's results tell you is that that still hasn't happened yet. Um, but what Sanjay was saying about, you know, revenues have troughed, things will get better moving forward. And, and, and just before we let you go, pricing-wise, with regard to, you mentioned dynamic random access memory and, and their uses. What exactly is going to be the pricing outlook for, for some of these key chips for Micron? Yeah, so the, the pricing outlook's a, a little bit uh, bleak at the moment. What what really, I think, gets Micron out of this trough is, uh, you, you mentioned AI. AI needs something called high bandwidth memory. Um, we're shifting to DDR5 uh, for servers in particular. Uh, both of those products really only get made on the newest nodes. Um, there's limited capacity right now there. There's not a lot of inventory right now there. So I think when you get towards the end of this year, you start seeing new server platform shipping. You continue to see great momentum around AI. You see more demand for those products. Uh, the memory makers don't have enough capacity. I think that's what really lifts memory pricing, starts to lift margins uh, for these companies. And we start to see Micron moving back towards uh, positive earnings again. 
All right, that's Matt Bryson at Wedbush, an outperform rating and an $80 price target on Micron. Thank you very much. We'll talk later. Coming up on the show, Virgin Galactic's gearing up for a critical flight today. We talked to a founding SpaceX member about the key questions and concerns around the commercial space race. We're what exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of the headlines dominating conversations on trading desks around the world. Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom with your global briefing. Juliana. Hey, Dom. Well, the biggest bright spot in the European market this morning is Renault in the auto space. Shares up nearly 6% as Renault raised its full-year outlook after a number of successful new launches. The French carmaker expects a higher operating margin of between 7 and 8% for the full year. And the CFO says inventories are coming down, but delivering cars to customers does remain a challenge. Now, another name in focus this morning, Salesforce. Shares are edging higher in Frankfurt trade. Salesforce has announced it will invest $4 billion in its UK business over the next five years. The American software company said it will focus on artificial intelligence while working with the British government to drive digital transformation. Tom? Juliana Teitelbaum with your global briefing. Thank you very much. Virgin Galactic is set to launch its first commercial flight to the edge of space today. Two Air Force officers and an aerospace engineer from Italy will board the rocket plane, as you're seeing there, along with their instructor and two pilots for the suborbital ride about 50 miles above the New Mexico desert. Virgin Galactic is planning a second commercial flight for what it calls, quote unquote, private astronauts in early August. Today's flight ramps up the space tourism race with Virgin Galactic competing against SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Let's bring in Jim Cantrell, founder and CEO of Phantom Space, which is aiming to build rockets and space transportation technology. He has also worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL, and was on the founding team at SpaceX. You could say that he knows a few things about space travel. So, Jim, thank you very much for joining us. Let's talk about how important you think this Virgin Galactic flight will be today. It's a, it's a big milestone for Virgin Galactic. It's a big milestone for the commercial space tourism industry. It's the first commercial crew that will go up into space on this uh, particular machine. And uh, SpaceX has already done it, but this will be the first time for Virgin. So it's a, it's a big deal. All right. In your mind, as you watch this, what exactly... I'm not just investors, but but maybe just aficionados, people who want to kind of dream a little bigger about what space travel could look like. What what, what should they be keying on today when, when they watch this flight happen? I, I would say I would key on just how routine this is probably going to become. Right now, it's not very routine at all. But, you know, what what I think Virgin Galactic brings to the table it, with their uh, their airplane based system, they don't uh, you know go into orbit. They go up into space and come back within a matter of hours. And uh, this this is set to become a bit of a routine uh, the way they've they've set up the operations here. So I think that's the big promise of Virgin Galactic. Uh, whereas the others like SpaceX and that it's a, a bit more expensive. It's uh, quite a bit more expensive. It goes to the space station. Uh, you stay in orbit. It, the risks are are di- quite different. So uh, this is a this is a, a more touchable by the average person, even though it's still fairly expensive by average person standards. Jim, I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the risks and safety aspect of this conversation. Uh, space travel is something that that yes, beyond just the monetary value of it, seems like there is a certain component of risk to it. 
We are coming off a couple of weeks when we just watched a submersible trying to go see the Titanic have a catastrophic end. What exactly is then going to have to be the story that's told by many of these companies with regard to the safety element of travel above into space or, of course, even now below, as we've learned, into the deep sea ocean? Yeah, both, you know, diving that deep into the ocean and going into space was once the, the sole domain of nation states and uh, companies like SpaceX and Virgin Orbit, among others, have uh, started to make this available to the average person. SpaceX was the first private company to ever get a, a rocket into space that wasn't government funded. And uh, so so the deep space uh uh, submarine that, or sorry, the the submarine that went uh, foul last week uh, was was really a tragedy. And there, there's a big difference between these two things in in terms of the regulatory agency on it. You know, both are very risky. Uh, people have lost their lives doing both before, and uh, the difference really, in my mind, is is one of uh, who watches out. And while I'm not a big fan of government regulation, I think the FAA's done a great job. Of regulating space flight and they they have their regulatory nose in the tent because the, any u.s vehicle that flies into space the passenger safety and or the ground safety of people uh that fly below that are below the flight uh, are regulated by the faa and they do a, they do a very fair job just like every airplane we all sit on out on international waters there there is no regulatory body and uh, people can do as they please and I think we see the consequences of this. I, I, my opinion is the Titan episode was very sloppy engineering. It was very sloppy uh, uh, validation of that engineering. They shouldn't have made it the way they made it with composites. It's it's the wrong use of carbon fiber composites uh, for for that kind of uh, application. And people died. And uh, you know those of us who are engineers that understand this. Uh, are really pretty critical of what they've done. I don't think you'll see that same sort of thing in space uh, because of the regulatory side of it. The FAA does a very thorough job of looking through it, just like they do our airplanes. So I'm, I'm a little more optimistic about the space side, You know, although people will die, and it's, it's an inherently risky activity. All right. Jim Cantrell with some valuable insights there about space travel. Thank you, sir. We'll see you soon. My pleasure. All right. Virgin Galactic CEO will have more on today's launch when he speaks to CNBC exclusively 4 p.m. Eastern time. Closing bell overtime. A must watch interview there. Still ahead on the show. The one word every investor needs to know today. Truist's Keith Lerner digs into the market action and lays out the areas he says has near term upside. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up. Some stories to keep an eye on before the opening bell. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell saying again this morning that thanks to a strong labor market, a majority of his fellow policymakers expect two or more rate hikes by the end of the year. Powell made similar comments to our own Sarah Eisen yesterday in Portugal. He made those comments, by the way, in Madrid today in Spain. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying she hopes to travel to China in a bid to reestablish contact with Beijing. Yellen not offering a timeline on when that trip may happen. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella testifying yesterday that he would like to ditch exclusive deals between video game companies and console makers. The comments coming during a hearing on the FTC's bid to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. The Wall Street Journal says FTX is in talks with investors to restart, restart its flagship international crypto exchange, 
amid increased regulatory scrutiny and as the company works through bankruptcy proceedings. And the Financial Times reporting big news publishers, including the New York Times and Wall Street Journal parent company News Corp, are teaming up to address the impact of AI and the need for protection from the technology. Well, now we have a news alert on Amazon. Bloomberg says in the coming weeks, the FTC is planning a far-reaching antitrust suit aimed at Amazon's core online marketplace. The suit is expected to allege Amazon uses its power to reward merchants that use the company's logistics services and punishes the ones that do not. Amazon shares up half a percent in extended trading. Let's dive into the market action right now. The S&P 500 and high-yield bonds, they might tell a story about where sentiment currently is right now. The overall, the S&P 500 over the last year is up about 14.5%. Meanwhile, a big ETF that tracks the high-yield or junk bond market is up about 2%. The interesting part is it's remained relatively steady here over the course of the last several months, perhaps indicating that there isn't as much concern about the effects of a possible recession coming down the line. So we'll keep an eye on that dynamic. For more on the trading day ahead, let's bring in Keith Lerner, Truist Advisory Services Co-Chief Investment Officer. I wonder, Keith, if you are worried about a recession. It certainly seems like the riskiest bond investors do not worry that much. Yeah, well, great to be with you, Dom. Listen, I still think there's risk of a a notable slowdown as we think about over the next six to 12 months. Um, However, I mean, I think it is pretty evident that the, the, the economy has been less interest rate sensitive than a lot of a lot of us had thought coming into the year. And one way to look at that is not only in the high yield market where credit spreads remain very well behaved, um, but but also um, look at the the average jobs that we created this year has been about three hundred thousand as well. But you know, as you think forward, um, you know, we still have this lagged effect of Fed policy, and credit conditions are likely to become somewhat more tighter. But again, I think you know you're seeing the consumer that has you know still has this excess savings. A lot of companies have termed out their debt. So I think that's kind of the uh, the upside surprise we've seen in the first half here. Brings us to your word of the day, because you mentioned it in, in kind of a, a little bit of a concept. What is that word and how does it refer to the economy? OK, Dom, the word of the day is resilient. And I would say that's for the overall economy and the markets, as we just mentioned. Um, the S&P, as we close out the first half, up about 14 percent. The Nasdaq, I'm sorry, the S&P technology sector up about 39. Home builders, home builders up 39%. Who would have thought that given, you know, how aggressive the Fed rate hike has been? And forward earning estimates for the S&P are at a 52-week high. So I think, you know, you know, any way you slice it, at least for the first half, the market and the economy has been resilient. Now, a lot of that resilience, you can say, is due to two or three sectors in particular. It's tech. It's comm services and it's consumer discretionary. Does that momentum continue or are valuations getting a little toppish? You know, one of the challenges, and, and I think it's hard to think there's going to be a huge amount of upside from here, is as you mentioned, you know, the S&P overall is trading close to a 19 multiple now. And as you mentioned, there's three sectors. There's only three sectors outperforming the S&P, which is the ones you just uh, mentioned as well. So listen, I, I think, uh, you know, the way going forward, I, I still think the underlying trend you have to respect this is up. I think you'll see much more moderation. And what we've been more focused recently is on the equal weighted S&P, which is only up about four or five percent this year and had one of its largest uh, underperformance that we've seen in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. All right. Keith Lerner, before we let you go, your worst sector out there right now, just a few seconds. 
Um, we still uh, are underweight financials, and we think it's going to be a, a challenging time given a slowdown in the economy and, and, and where rates are today. All right. Keith Lerner, always with the insights there from Truist. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. Futures are pointing to a modest positive open. We'll see if that sticks. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.